Well, on this uh, very special evening when we will in a few moments be ordaining uh, Richard to the gospel ministry, we're going to spend a little bit of time in the Bible appropriately in God's Word. And so I invite you to turn with me to the book of Joshua. It's in the first half of the Bible. It's on page 181. You'll find there's a church Bible uh, somewhere related to the pews or something like that. If you haven't brought your own Bible, that's just fine. If you can't find one, you don't need to have it with you. I'll read it for you and uh, you'll do just fine without looking at the Bible. But if you can find one, it's always helpful at College Church as we root our authority in, in God's Word and we take that to be in the Scriptures and the Bible. So we'll be looking uh, this evening from the book of Joshua, chapter 5, and verses 13 through to 15. So as we come to God's Word, let's pray together. Our Father God, we do thank you for your Word. We pray tonight that as we look at this story together, it wouldn't just be my words, but we would hear resonating in our minds and in our hearts a word from you, the living God, the creator of the whole universe. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, uh, Joshua chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 13 to verse 15. It's a pivotal moment in the story of Joshua. So verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you... For us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The subject of ordination is one that has fascinated people down through the years. It's a very religious word, isn't it? Ordination. We don't ordain other things. We dedicate a road. We don't ordain a road. I've always rather liked the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon's comment about ordination, that ordination is empty hands on empty heads. Of course, that won't be the case this evening. Certainly not the empty head. It's filled with knowledge and insight. As we're setting aside someone for gospel ministry uh, this evening in a formal way, it's worth spending a few moments together, I think, considering the significance of that. It's always been significant down through the history of the church. I suppose we have long been aware that to put a man in a pulpit or in a church or sent him out as a missionary 
is a risky business. Martyrology, the study of people giving their lives for the service of God, has its basis in fact. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs or the history of the early church with Christians being thrown to the lions for standing up for Jesus. When we ordain someone, we are asking them to lead the charge, to put their neck on the line. We've always known that, but in the last hundred years or so, I expect, in America perhaps, and certainly in the Western world at large, the chances of that sort of opposition have seemed at best, or at worst, remote. And perhaps that's still the case. But there's no doubt we live in days when there is increased pressure on pastors and on churches. I was just looking up again this week to check my memory, some of the facts about the surveys of the number of pastors who are leaving the ministry or who have burnt out. I, uh, there was a, a young man who was an undergraduate student when I first arrived at this church 15 years ago or so. And then he went off to the ministry and he's, amazingly, he's now a senior pastor somewhere. And I was chatting with him about his experience and he's going strong and doing well. And that's been our experience of people we have set aside for the ministry. But I was asking him, what proportion of those who went to seminary with him, he must be now, I suppose, 35 or something, what proportion of those who went to seminary with him are still in ministry? He said, one-third. That was kind of surprising to me. And so, as I say, I went back and checked through the statistics, and it, it, it roughly adds up to being basically what surveys are showing. At least that's the way it feels. Uh, one uh, set of statistics from an organization called Barna uh, said a very high percentage, around 37% of pastors uh, in 2022 were considering leaving the ministry altogether. 37%. But that's not quite the same as those who actually had left, according to Barna in 2015. It's 1.3% who had left, and 2022, 1.5%, which is an increase, but within the margin of error. And so when I looked at 37% who are considering leaving, I thought, what well, if they'd asked pastors on a Monday morning? That seems like a low percentage to me. It's one thing to feel a little blue and fed up. It's another thing to actually give up altogether. But there's no doubt there is a higher percentage of pastors who are giving up altogether than was the case not that long ago. And of course that mirrors the feeling in our society with relation to church as a whole. And there are many reasons why pastors feel pressure, but one of the reasons is the need to fill the place. And of course, this is a Sunday evening service, and our 11 o'clock service this morning was packed. It's not like this is, we always want to see more people, but it's not like this is stress for us, uh, by God's grace. But if you look at the confidence levels, again, by surveys, by statistics, 
And you always have to look at these statistics with the, take them with a grain of sand because it all depends on how many people you ask and what the actual questions you ask are and all the rest. But if you look at the statistics out there, Lifeway, for instance, which is a reputable organization, uh, estimates that in 2022, the American people at large and their confidence in the church has slipped to uh, about 35% who have some confidence in the church as an institution. Whereas back in the 1980s or so, it was like 75%. But of course, that mirrors confidence in institutions as a whole. Very similar to the number of the percentage of Americans who have confidence in the government or in schools or in hospitals or whatever. But because of that, there is increasing pressure on pastors. And there will be increasing pressure on Richard and our pastoral team. And it's good for the church to be aware of that. But the real truth of the matter is, and I think I'm accurate in sharing this with my experience, the experience of my colleagues both here in America and in England and elsewhere around the world. The real truth of the matter is the gospel churches are growing and the churches that are abandoning the gospel are having a hard time. Kel surprise. We shouldn't be surprised. And all that's a rather long introduction to this passage. Because in this passage, there is a wrong question to ask of ministry and a right question. The wrong question you'll find if you look down with me in your Bibles in verse 13, Joshua sees uh, this man before him who's standing there with a drawn sword. He uh, lifted up his eyes and looked. Perhaps Joshua had been praying before he goes into battle over Jericho, or maybe he was feeling despondent. He'd been reading some of those Barna statistics, perhaps. But he looks up, and he sees a man with a drawn sword before him. And as Joshua is about to go into battle, to meet someone with a drawn sword would be a bit like meeting someone with a machine gun pointed at you today. It's out of its sheath. It's drawn. And so the natural question, the reasonable question to ask is, are you on my side or on the other side? It's a reasonable question to ask, but it's the wrong question. The man with the drawn sword, verse 14, replies, No. Are you for us or for our enemies? Answer, not. No. Wrong question. Very common in ministry circles to ask this question, this wrong question. Are you for us or for the other side? Are you in our denomination or another denomination? Do you have our theology or someone else's theology? Are you part of our tribe or a different group? But it's the wrong question. 
Understandable and reasonable as it may be in certain circumstances, it's still the wrong question. When I uh, was first starting out in ministry, I was being trained by a particular group of, uh, of people in England who are very, uh, a very good a group of people, and they had all sorts of uh, strong inclinations around the Bible and Jesus and evangelism, discipleship, and all the rest of these things. But they, like all cultures, as they develop, they develop their own quirks, and some of them were humorous and fine. I mean, for instance, they had had a quirk of of particular in jokes. So you may not know, but there's a major division in English culture as to whether you put your milk in first when you have tea or afterwards. You you may not know this, but there is. Some people like to put the milk in first and some afterwards. And uh, there's also, uh, uh, in theology, a rather technical debate about whether God's divine decrees took place before the fall or the lapse, as it's sometimes called in technical theological jargon, or after the fall. And those who think it took place before the fall are called supralapsarians, and those who think it took place after the fall are called infralapsarians, a really technical debate. And so in, this, in these uh, circles in, Eng- in England where I was uh, having my first exposure to Christian discipleship and being trained to be a minister at a young age and that sort of thing, they would go around over tea time and people would ask, uh, 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 they would joke along these lines. They would say as they offered the tea with the milk next to it, they would say, are you a supra or infra lactarian? Sort of nerd humor for theologians. That was fine. But they had other quirks. If someone was playing with an idea that didn't quite fit within their mind or their set of approval, uh, they would say off the side of their mouth, I'm not sure he's quite one of us. In fact, they had an acronym for it, which was uh, uh, not quite what we want, or NQWWW. Someone would say, I think that's NQWWW. Not quite what we want. Not on our side. Not part of our group. Not our DNA. Not in our club. Doesn't sound like us or look like us. Didn't go to the same schools as us. It's an understandable question, but it's the wrong question. It's defining Christianity and spiritual experience Ultimately, on human terms. Who wants that? No one. Why would you? Why would anyone outside the church be interested in us offering our own version of tribal religiosity? Who cares? It's the wrong question. Are you for us or for our enemies? No. Wrong question. 
But there is the right question. The right question then comes as Joshua falls on his face to the earth and worshipped. He falls uh, flat on his face and he worships the man before him. And he says, what does my Lord say? That's the right question. What do you have to say to me? What is the word? Now that's getting somewhere. It's very easy in ministry to always be thinking about what you have to say to someone else. But all ministry begins with first, my Lord. All authentic ministry, biblical ministry, begins first with my Lord. What do you have to say to me? Pastors, if they're biblical pastors, are men with a message. A message from God. What do you have to say? Not what do I have to say. Who cares about that? But what does he have to say? It's the right question to ask if you're spiritually searching too, isn't it? What does God have to say to me? The God who made the whole universe. The God who is infinite upon infinite. What does he have to say? It is an amazing story. If you do have your Bibles open, you may notice that as the narrative carries on, uh, the answer of what uh, the captain of the Lord's army has to say to Joshua is given from verse 2 onwards. But what you perhaps or may not have noticed, or if you have, let me remind you again, in verse 2 it tells us that now the Lord said to Joshua, and in most English translations, the Lord is uh, typed here, written in the, in the Bible, in uppercase, in capital letters, And that's because it's translating the Hebrew word for the special name of God himself, Yahweh or Jehovah. In other words, Joshua met the Lord, God. And of course... Jesus is merely the Greek for Joshua. And so Joshua met the pre-incarnate Christ. Joshua met the real Joshua. No wonder he worshipped. That's why he has to take off his sandals. The feet from, uh, on the place we are standing is holy. God, the holy, holy, holy is there and emanating out from him like cascading ripples is holiness. That's the right question. What do you have to say to me? 
Joshua met the real Joshua. He met Jesus. So often when people met Jesus, they also asked the wrong question. The Pharisees asked uh, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? (laughs) Wrong question. The Sadducees asked Jesus, uh, when this person is married and his wife dies and his wife dies and his wife dies, who, who's, who, who will be the, the, the right marriage when they get to heaven? R- wrong, wrong question. The only thing that matters is what does God have to say to you? There's Joshua. He's got a big battle ahead of him as he goes down to Jericho. But the real battle is asking the right question. That's the battle of life. Paul, when he was on the Damascus Road, encountered Jesus. heard Jesus, and followed him. Peter, when he heard from God, realized that it didn't matter what kinds of different sort of religious foods people met. All that mattered was the gospel going to all nations. He met and heard from God himself. And, of course, Peter was told by Jesus to put away his sword So Richard, as you go into ministry, I want to encourage you to make sure you ask the right question. Not the question of networking and personal influence and religious power. Are you on my side or on someone else's side? But the question of what does the Lord have to say to me, his servant. And I want to encourage us all to ask that question as well tonight. What does that mean practically for, uh, for you, Richard, as you go into ministry? Uh, let me give you three brief points, each beginning with P, like every sermon should have. Personal, persuasive, perseverance. Personal. Make sure your life is rooted in a relationship with Jesus personally. We've talked before about pastors who have failed in that regard. Stay in the vine. Be rooted in Jesus personally. Personal. Persuasive. Uh, We've talked a lot about leadership and communication and teaching the Bible, we do have a task to watch not only our life but also our doctrine carefully. We must be persuasive. We have the greatest message that the world has ever heard, that if we believe in Jesus, we're saved for all eternity, and we must do everything we can to get that message out with every ability we have. Be persuasive, personal persuasive. And then perseverance You're in the army now. 
You don't get to decide when to quit. You go where you're told. There is a captain of the Lord's army. It is Jesus. And we go and stay at the command of our captain, the Lord Jesus. And so we persevere. Wrong question, right question. Let's pray and then uh, we'll move on to the actual ordination. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do thank you for your word. And we pray uh, that this evening it would be encouragement to Richard, uh, to his family and friends, and to us as a church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen.